Welcome to the More Than Music podcast with your host Thibaut Duchesne and Chris Snellgrove. In each episode, we will discuss what sparked our guests' passion and what continues to motivate them to live a dedicated life to the arts. The often overlooked reality is that genuinely dedicating oneself to one's art is not all about the euphoric moments of creation and expression. We hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. More Than Music, episode three. Uh, our guest today is Svenja Klemp, and I met Svenja at the Rinos Ferras Festival in France in 2017, when she was on tour as the merch manager for Jaya the Cat. We've kept in touch digitally over the years and have always made plans to hang out when we think our touring schedules will be nearby. But the touring life takes you all over the place, uh, never worked out, and then the pandemic hit last year and all touring stopped. She's a highly respected freelance photographer, a retouching specialist, a driver, roadie, tech, tour manager, and anything else you can think of related to the traveling circus known as live music. Here's to hoping that we can see each other again in some random place on this planet doing what we love in 2022. Hi, Svenja. So Hi. just so that we start with the show, it's more than music, and Chris told me about you, and uh, I, we were like, well, this you're the perfect guest for this show in the sense that the show the point of the show is an exploration into people's lives who choose um, the uncommon road in terms of their profession in terms of choosing arts or working with art or doing work that just stimulates them internally and what brings them to do that and what's kind of the costs of living this unusual kind of work life, not the usual work that I guess a lot of people are used to. So the artist's life. And uh, we just kind of want to look into your life story and see where you came from and what brought you to where you are now. And uh, what is your vision of the future in terms of how you want to live your life? Oh, that is an interesting one. It leads from where I'm very familiar with to where I might have to hazard a guess, I think. But yeah, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy yeah, to do that. It, it, it's funny because of this pandemic, I feel like everyone in our situation is kind of doing the same. Like, what happens if things don't come back? Yeah, or well, when and how, to what degree is it going to be the same? What we have got so good at in adjusting I would I would say most of us in music are masters of making plans sticking to plans and adjusting plans along the way because on tour yeah, you usually have a set up plan where you need to be and it always happens like I've, I've been on tours where I've showed up at the venue and <laughs> um, the booker had confirmed the date for two months later because he had a bit of a mix-up in the date. So we were in a bar where the people were like, who are you? What are you doing here? Um, And then obviously you go into damage control mode and try to sort (laughs) out, okay, we're here now. What do we do now? Where do we need to be tomorrow? Where do we stay? So again, we're fairly, I think, as lots of touring people are very used to adapting quickly. And this pandemic has shown anything like we can make plans. They're not going to happen. (laughs) (laughs) If if there's one thing I've learned over the last year, it's that whatever plan I've made, I've had to revise so many times beyond what I usually do in adjusting plans. So it's... um, Of course. (laughs) 
it's like, it's like now I'm learning, I'm having to learn to undo what I did for so many years and not plan ahead and actually take it on a shorter, uh, shorter mm. notice base and then see how it goes, which is like, it's, it's, it's highly unusual if you've spent so many years planning far ahead. It really is unusual when you think about it, because I mean, most people would say, well, I'm doing this in about two months and then I have this coming up and then I have that. And the pandemic makes it as though they, we can't plan anything. So you have to go in the present moment constantly. You're always brought back to the present moment, uh, which is very humbling and very anxiety provoking at the same time. Especially for people. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, especially for people who are so used to always being on the move. You know, it's like, well, what do I, what do I do? I have to stay here. What? Longer than a week? Exactly. (laughs) What is this? (laughs) Why is the catering? Oh no, I made the catering myself. (laughs) Hungry? What time's catering? Oh wait. Oh man. Um, but I do have to say I am quite a foodie and it's been at least last summer definitely been quite a pleasure to have so much time to cook at home and actually have things like a sourdough static that I can keep alive because I'm not away constantly <laughs> um, and have like a stock of the fridge and I can use all of this and I don't have to abandon it because I'm away for the weekend or the random leftovers from tours and festivals and the uh, yeah, uh, yeah, definitely depleted the whatever I had left over from catering. I would eat that, so that didn't happen. Are you going to be able to adapt to going back to leftovers and yeah. rotting food? And yeah, I try. <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, I've, I've joined. Um, there's a Dutch-based app called Too uh, Too Good to Go, where you can sign up and then see restaurants and grocery stores that have food that is about to be binned and they just then put it on the app and you can pick it up. So I still get a little bit of leftover feelings. (laughs) Awesome, man. That's such a good initiative. That is totally banned here and in the U S both Canada and the U S because of lawsuits. Yeah. If you eat, I remember we went to, uh, have you ever been to Canada? Yes. Okay. Uh, So 2014, new year, 2015. Ah, okay. So you know what a Tim Hortons is. The donut shop. So years ago, I remember being on tour and we were totally broke. And we went into a Tim Hortons and it was the end, like the shift change. When I was 17, I worked at Tim Hortons. So I knew like what time they got rid of the food and stuff. So we were talking to the woman working there and I said, hey, instead of throwing this food out, could we just take it? And she explained to me that not only could we not take it, they had to put it in bags with garbage so that nobody would look through it. That's absolutely awful. I remember there being a big uproar about a supermarket chain in Germany putting cleaning detergents into the into the bins when food was put out there. And usually it was like perfectly fine food, and then people would go in container and dive like dumpster yeah, dive. Dumpster dive, yeah. Um, yeah, and just to avoid, even like mostly they said they didn't want any homeless people going through the to the dumpsters and then they just put like bleach and chlorine in there and that has caused a huge outrunners actually if they're not allowed to do this anymore and it's changing like slowly across Europe and France for example they're not allowed to throw any food out at all 
Oh, wow. Supermarkets, they have to give it to food banks and have to recycle it. Really? That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's a step forward. Yeah, we can yeah. just look at them and see how they do it. As usual in North America, we're a little behind <laughs> <laughs> in our lovely litigious society. You'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, Svenja, if, uh, how would you, you know, how did you get into where you are now? You know, where did the, the spark for the arts and for not wanting to, for lack of better words, live a usual life of just, you know, the nine to five? Um, how did I get into this? I, uh, to go back to my earliest roots, I would say to go to photography first, because that was something I'd always been doing in like in high school. I was 14 when I had my first uh, um, SLR camera. And I would just take it everywhere I went on holidays and other places. And then in school, we had a photo lab, so we could lock ourselves in there with three people and just forget about time because you couldn't see any clocks you there's no lights on and you were just locked in there in the dark and <coughs> so pictures come to life in the developer which was a mag- to this day to me this is a very magical feeling because there's a blank piece of paper and then you see something coming up that tells a story later on it's still like it makes me still very excited to do this I don't do it nowhere near as often since everything is mostly digital these days but I did this and then uh, after school I actually went and did something completely different I studied sports science and event management which um, was more a sense of I had already worked in the field it was just a logical step and then at some point I realized do I really want to do this I never at some point I felt like I didn't make the decision myself anymore Um, and I just dropped out and decided to go ahead and moved away, applied for an apprenticeship as a photographer and thought, you know, I always had this fear of if I go into anything creative, what if I hit this block, this creative, the writer's block, the that other creatives feel in other fields as well. So I was scared of something that might happen to me before I even started it. But then I just dropped out, had a year of, working in like a little deli and living in another place and finding what I really wanted to do. And I said, I might just give it a shot. And I was then, yeah, had the guts to apply somewhere where I didn't know if I stood a chance or not. I got uh, got taken on for an apprenticeship and then basically started my photography career in an advertising studio while also attending photography school. And at the same time, <laughs> to say that in my in my year off in my Wumspringer year, um, I had made friends in this town that I had moved to that were which that was I'm Hamburg, at, right? Huh? Which was Hamburg, right? Uh, that was north of Hamburg, actually, a town <coughs> called Kiel, which is a little bit more sleepy on the okay. on the Baltic Sea. Okay. Um, but I got fairly automatically got sucked into the local punk scene there because I worked in a deli that had a mostly vegetarian and vegan offering and then the local punk scene would show up here and there and we connected and you know I went to their shows and then somehow I always ended up with musician friends and in this punk scene I was very welcome because it's one of these local punk scenes where there's not a lot going on and if a band comes in from outside everyone goes it's not like in yeah. Hamburg, I had this feeling there's so much going on that if you see like bands coming, someone else is coming and you just go, 
I'll see them next year. They're coming back anyways. Whereas where I live, yeah, yeah. if there was a punk band coming in, I remember um, like some bands coming in, we just made sure 100% we'd go, no matter how tired you were or what else. But then, and then you just had your local friends that were all part of the same scene. And I'm still friends with a lot of them. And that was like 14 years ago, I think. I haven't lived there in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- this is kind of my next question. I, the enthusiasm is amazing, but how old were you? I was in my early 20s. Okay. So I was not, I was not the, the, the teenager. Yeah, okay. That most people, you know, I think maybe it's also got to do with me being a woman when I was a teenager. It was still a little bit the role of a girl was like, maybe you're friends with a band, but you're not in the band. You're not like... You're not involved in the process. You're kind of there, and maybe you're accepted, but you're not really assigned a role per se. I, I found that for myself later when I was a little bit more grown up and had more confidence. Yeah, I, uh, I to- unfortunately totally understand that. It's, um, it's probably also got to do with where I grew up, which is a bit more rural and a bit more uh, traditional in that sense. But they just couldn't do that. <laughs> Maybe it's different for girls there that are growing up there now, but when I was, it wasn't. Yeah, it's very similar. I don't know if you remember Stephanie. She was the bass player uh, yeah. in Last Mile. And she grew up in a small town as well. And <clears throat> even as a musician, like touring through Canada and stuff, she would always get asked, oh, are you the singer's girlfriend? Yeah, you know, I don't know how many times I almost got chucked out of a backstage area for like, no, no, the band needs to have their peace and quiet now. So I am the band's tour manager. And if, yeah. um, if you would not throw me out, I'd be very much appreciated. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. you ended up at, I read your biography on your, on your page. So you ended up at the London Business School media program at one point, LBS. Um, Oh, no, LBS. <laughs> That's actually um, the photography school up north in Germany. It has the same abbreviation. Because <laughs> the funny thing is, is LBS actually has a media program in Germany. Around yeah, well, no, this is, this, is, this is a separate one. This is called, this is a very long German word. We like to stack words together. Yes. Uh, it's called Landesberufsschule für Medien. So this was like um, basically a state school for media, and but this one is specialized in photography. So um, for me, that also meant uh, we didn't have a photography school in Hamburg per se. So we were boarding in that school and that's okay. the one I went to. Ironically, this is where I had spent my break year away from everything. So for me, it was a nice return once a month to go back to school in the place that I well, still called home at the time. Mm, okay. So, but um, once a month. Yeah, it's like the ratio is usually you work for three, four weeks and then you spend a week in school. Sometimes oh, cool. they're together in blocks, yeah, of three weeks if they want to cram in more. Cool. Yeah. But you so, were saying that sorry, your parents uh, were very traditional. So choosing, you know, photography, was that already a challenge to kind of voice where you wanted to go? rather than yeah and I kind of needed to but luckily my dad was the one who gave me my first essay well he owned it and I borrowed it and maybe I never gave it back (laughs) but he was the one that the camera and I I was allowed to after some negotiation I was allowed to use it and uh, 
uh, so he was a little bit more supportive because that was a hobby of his that he could understand. Whereas my previous choice of studying sports science was something he didn't understand. The, the need to go to university was something that was not something he would be like. He wasn't very supportive of it. Um, he'd just be like, just learn something and then work. You know, that's what we all do. And say, mm. yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm a different generation and I've already made it this far in school. Why don't I go to university? Interesting. Yeah. So they were supportive of us as long as we were doing well in schools. So They're great, smart kids. But as soon as it meant, oh, actually, this means my child needs a little bit of financial support. They were, why are you going to university? You can just work. You know? Right, right. So for me, also choosing this German way of uh, doing an apprenticeship in photography also meant like my school was paid for and I got uh, I got paid monthly, not a ton, but it was just enough for me to pay my rent and health insurance and then make it through. And can, you go, can you go back to those special moments that you brought up in the, the dark room where there was something magical when you saw your picture kind of come up from that blank piece of paper you know, what did you learn in those moments? Like what, what was coming up inside you during those moments? Um, it was a mix of the way we had approached the lab. Obviously I had a basic understanding of how it worked, but then just actually being in there and first not being allowed to use negatives, but doing like photograms and trying to put things on there because the actual photo was I wouldn't say sacred thing, but it was for the later lessons that we were going through. But then actually seeing it work and seeing something come up was, um, yeah, you recreate a moment you have lived before. Or funnily enough, in our case, we had found rolls of film that someone had left in this lab for decades because it was, oh, wow. yeah, it laid empty for a while until my teacher decided to brush off, like, take the dust off and reactivate it. So we found some like, negatives from a girl clearly from the 70s in a flower dress <laughs> walking through a meadow and just finding these things um yeah seeing it come to paper so many years or even probably decades later was uh, yeah it was quite a nice moment and then I could capture it there and I could also create it in a way I could give it my interpretation of the moment even if it was so much later, I could make it really dark and it would look kind of like on a goth cemetery. Or I could make it really light and airy and breezy and give it a completely different feel. Um, I found that quite fascinating because maybe it was trial and error in the beginning that sometimes we'd get something wrong, but then we learned, okay, if I do this for too long, it gets heavier and contrastier and punchier. And if I do this, I give it a, a, like a lighter feeling. So as an artist, you totally could take someone else's photograph and change it to whatever you wanted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know? Especially in like a field that was always, for a long time, described not as art. It's just like, it's reproducing. It's not art, you're not creating. But you are creating. You're creating with the frame you choose, the moment you choose, and how you treat it after. And that continues to this day in digital photography, obviously, with it's a bit faster and it seems less selective, but if you do it with an eye from an analog photographer's upbringing, mm -hmm. I'm still very selective in moments I choose. I remember once taking a photo of um, in the Canadian band on stage 
and they were jumping around a lot. And I caught this one moment of like three of the band members mid air, the light was spot on. I could see everyone. It was just so perfect. And then a stupid habit of deleting camera uh, photos on the camera made me accidentally delete it right there. And I just froze. I'm like, no, no, no. What have I done now? It was just the perfect moment because I was start just like shooting and seeing whatever comes up with it, but really waiting, anticipating. I've watched them. I've seen many of the shows. I kind of, it's not choreographed, but I know sometimes when certain things happen that they get into this vibe. Yeah, and of course. I'm, I'm, I haven't been able to rescue this photo. I've like oh, no. used different programs to try and rescue my uh, memory cards. I'm still to this day, and this is 10 years later, I'm still about <laughs> <laughs> this one photo. There were other nice photos in that set, so, but I was so, I had seen this photo. It's great. It's like, it's in my memory. It's burnt in there <laughs> and nowhere else. <laughs> So this like, that's that's still something I do. I do try and like intuitively or knowingly or sometimes a mix of both. I try to place myself somewhere where I can get these shots that I find very significant and um then obviously later also take on the way I edit them. And I don't mean like insane liquify photoshopping, but just give it the look and the feel of how it felt in that moment because obviously yeah, of course. <laughs> lighting you can't always you you know the feeling of what it felt like what it looked like on stage but maybe in just that very second you didn't have the same light on you or on what you're photographing but to be able to get this feeling back into the photos is something it's still exciting it's still seeing it coming up and making it feel like you felt then now now you alluded to the just the point and click just to hold a button and you'll take a thousand pictures and one of them's bound to be good. Yet you said for this photo, you literally just stood and waited for it and cause you knew it was coming. Yeah. <clears throat> so, I mean, from, from an analog perspective, I mean, this is a luxury that we, we have now that. And, yeah, and don't, it's luxury, and, but it's also a waste because you need to, you need to still, if you shoot a thousand pictures, one's bound to be good. You need to be able to spot the one good one. Yeah. Well, this is, this is what I was going to say. I, I feel like, and I'm not taking away from this from any photographer. I have zero skills of photography. I'm terrible at it. But I know people who will stand at the side of a stage and talk to their friends and just go click, 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 <laughs> And it, it drives me insane because I remember before digital cameras, you'd see the photographers really just like, like you, like you said, just waiting for that moment. Like, okay, I know this song and I know there's a buildup. So t -t 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 and I don't know. I, I feel like an old man when I say stuff like that, but it just, it's, it, it's, it's relatable. It's something, it, maybe it's also my, then my teen years and twenties having spent it mostly in, well, not, yeah, yeah, mostly in like the punk and hardcore scene especially in the early 2000s, there was a whole when digital photography came around and you'd go to a show and there was more photographers than audience at some point. <laughs> I think that has slowly, like, that has gone away. I've, I've, see, I've seen it a couple of times when I was on tour with, like, bigger artists and they had an album out and then... Uh, the first three songs and then they're gone. 
Yeah, it's like three songs. But I remember being at a show in London and there was so many photographers in front of the stage. I was um, touring with a blues artist and um, she could not see the audience. So for the first three songs, she didn't know what's the vibe. Are they, are they there? Are they getting mm. it? Not because there was a wall of photographers in there. And she said, you know, this. I don't mean to be excluding people but also like it's like I can't feel my audience if there's so many people in the way so I can't see them so there's been like a bit of a ban on not like completely bans of photographers but saying we limit the numbers so they don't block your view yeah I totally understand it goes both ways if you're an artist on stage and you can't see your audience or can't hear them because there's so many lenses pointing at you I mean maybe I'm also speaking from a photographer's point of privilege because when I'm touring with her I am her personal photographer okay (laughs) Um, but I'm also aware that I would not go near the stage for the first three songs just so I can let her get into her vibe and she doesn't get like oh there's a camera I need to look a certain way or something I also try to not be seen um and let's let whatever happens on stage let it happen and I'll take it from where I can see it without getting involved and uh, I guess because I have that skill um, that's why she got me that yeah, job absolutely listening to you there's a very calming effect and like when you're talking about photography because you're really in the present moment and it's like a hunter just who has one bullet and he's got to get the shot right uh, and it's not about shooting everywhere and hoping the animal gets gets uh sorry for vegetarians <laughs> but there there is something about you know we say we we sh- we shoot uh there is something there about just pressing the button at the right time at the right moment capturing a moment in life yeah and also also like capturing the moment in life without interrupting or artificially creating it. it is, there's definitely something great about storytelling in photography that you can do. And I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I can do that too, but that's something I usually tend to reserve for this work I do in the studio rather than when it's live music. For me, it's also meant to be live. They're not meant to realize I'm there. They just do their thing and, um, I think that's what's helped, what has helped me in my touring career because it started off with photography and then being a photographer at different shows and then occasionally also helping out in merch or I could, I, I'm a very experienced driver. I've been driving like splitter vans since I was 18. So I had a few other hats to wear, but the, the, the initial in tended to be the photography side um, because then I had worked with bands that had hired me on a one-off basis for like a special occasion. And then they hired me a few times again and they realized, oh, we're going to another festival. Could you go? Oh, we only have one seat left. Can you also do these other things? Yeah. Like do the cashing in because the manager back then of one band said, I, uh, I trust you with it. I don't trust the band after a show with <laughs> counting the money and making sure they got it all right. Because they will be on on their adrenaline, they will be drunk. Um, would you mind doing that? And plus he said, it does look better if it's some. Oh, we lost you, Svenja. Yeah. Oh, we lost you right at the end there. Oh, it did. It's okay. You're back. I mean, now it says my internet. It, I'm still recording it as well. So, <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> some audio. Um, um, so yeah, yeah, it, it's always like it's been like my in with the first couple of touring jobs I've had was through photography, and then they, the the bands I worked with realized I could also you know I was a reliable person I could deal with finances I would usually stay sober and be the reliable driver also for long distance driving <laughs> what well, you you have seen loads of my long distance driving stories yes. and <laughs> guess how many coffees <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah um, so that's um yeah and does that just help me into touring more and especially in the punk scene where most touring crew are friends of the bands that happen to have skill sets um you then sharpen and it's made me more professional having the, the, the space and the opportunity to do all these things and try them out and get better at them well that was going to be my next question like when like how did bands start inviting you on tour was it your friends bands from northern germany or was it like people saw your photos that you had taken at shows or um yeah it was um one band specifically that I worked with for most years, and I think with them, well, well, the most years at first, I think I worked with them for five years. Um, they had been, they had approached me because a photographer colleague of mine recommended me for a thing they had for uh, St. Pauli, the football club. Mm-hmm. Yep. They had gone into the first league, had a celebration party. This band was invited to play. And it was all because they didn't, they didn't know the results of the games until very very late in the season. So it was all a very spontaneous thing that they got to play this and they wanted to capture it because for them it was such an honour to do. And then they asked me to it. And um, funnily enough, a week later they had asked me to photograph another thing for them that had come on the back of this. And then the drummer said, oh, oh, now that I see your photos, you are the person that I have seen on MySpace before because I looked at a band's MySpace. Uh, that was, I think that was Comeback Kid, actually. Um, oh. And they had <coughs> my photo on their MySpace, and so he had explored my stuff, and then when I was there in person, he realized that it was actually me. <laughs> so, it's like, you know, he came through another person, but he had seen my work before in a tiny corner of the internet, or back then, bigger corner of the internet. Um, so in a way, it was both seeing my work somewhere else, but also coming through another person. The, the punk and hardcore scene is very, very small, even on a worldwide basis. It's, it's kind of shocking sometimes, you know, you, you come to a town and you're like, oh, wait, I met you in this town when you were with this band. <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah, I, I, worked at, um, I worked at a festival in 2019, Boomtown Fair in the UK, which is like a 100,000 cap festival, a bit of a hippie. But, but they I, I looked it up after you told me about it. Yeah, and that was a funny one because the band came up and uh, I'd been tasked to make sure they get parked all right. The tour manager didn't know me. He didn't know that I had met the band before, but they showed up at my container in full festival gear with my um, headsets and everything, just being in full work mode in the UK. But I had met this band in Amsterdam. So for them, I am an Amsterdam person. So if I ran into them in Amsterdam, they would have been like, yeah, this is the manager of Jaya the Cat. I know her. But me being in a completely different place, in a completely different role, 
was yeah. a little bit confusing for the first second. He's like, I know you. I'm like, yeah. Or <laughs> <laughs> in a different country. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's definitely, there's always that split second when you're like, I, uh, and then once you place it, you know, someone's totally out of context, mm-hmm. like you said. And then once it's, you get placed and you're like, oh my God, hey, how's it going? But yeah, you told me about Boomtown and I looked it up. It looks crazy. And like, how did you get a, how did you get a job doing logistics for, for yeah, transport? Funny, funny story. I was actually picking up a van for a tour. I was um, tour managing that summer. Um, but it was a uh, tour. It was a bunch of festivals and a few shows in between. But this van I had to pick up in the UK and so the manager had organized it all, booked it all. I just had to fly over, pick it up, get the van. But when I picked up the van, the uh, owner of the van business, unbeknownst to me, had been involved in a lot of festival productions, had said, hey, your uh, manager said, uh, Chrissy said uh, um, that I might have a, I have a job for you. Did she tell you? I'm like, uh, no. I'm not aware of this. So basically he had a job interview for a job I didn't know about in a parking lot while standing next to a van doing a handover. And then after this whole conversation, I said, I'm still not 100% sure that I really understand what they want me to do, but they seem to have an idea that I can do this. Um, but they based their decision on me having been a tour manager and having toured for so long with different bands, especially also with punk bands, that's, you know, they say, okay, you are a tour manager, whisper, you understand what they need. And, <laughs> with them and, and then they put me in charge of their headliners, so the big artists coming yeah. in and all their transport needs on and around the festival, because we also had to shuttle them back to the airports to make the flights, which isn't always easy when a touring party consists of 20 people that need to go to five different airports over the span of tour. No. <laughs> <laughs> but we managed it. So everyone made their flights. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Now, I have a question for you. You say you started touring, taking, doing photography for bands. You do a show here or a tour there. At what point did it start to become something more serious? Like, at what point did you start taking it seriously? Like, you know, as a, I mean, I'm sure at the beginning it wasn't, I don't know if it was like anything here. What They're not really a job. Being a tour manager here, <clears throat> for an up-and-coming band is not really a job. You get in the van and go on tour for a month or two and take what scraps are at the end. That's what Tebow used to do. Yeah. Um, I think, but that's that's the way in. There's no, you know, I mean, they do it now in some universities that you can study production management or tour management. Um, but I think the way in is you spend your weekends doing scraps, scripts and scraps and stuff here and there. And then during the week you have, you know, I know most of my touring friends had like bar jobs on week uh, on weekdays. Um, you just do whatever fits in. And for me, it was just a natural transition because during my apprenticeship, I already spent my weekends away on tour. I had through bands I had worked with, gotten to know other, in lack, for lack of a better word, more professional people. So they're sound engineers that had like proper proper production jobs and production companies and they had then hired me as their photographer and I started freelancing in this world of um, 
professionals on in my weeks off and on weekends. So during my last year of my apprenticeship, I spent every day that I wasn't in the studio working. I already spent that working on my own jobs as a freelancer. Okay. So the day I passed my exam, I um, I actually already had created a job for myself. So I knew, okay, the day I pass my exam is when my contract with the studio ends. And then I don't want to rely on a contract and an employer. So I had already started building a base. Sometimes I had to like, lie and make sure <laughs> the client didn't know I didn't have my exam or my degree yet. <laughs> because the people usually got me and knew I could do this, but mm-hmm. uh, and they just had to make sure no one would find out that I hadn't actually passed my exam yet. <laughs> and like pointingly enough, on the day I passed my exam, I, <coughs> um, I got a nice thing in the mail that arrived at work. And it was a seven-inch vinyl um, that had used a photo that I had taken years before for the artwork. And weirdly, I had these two things coming at the same time. And then the the, the vinyl, the, the one thing that connected me with music so much, meant even more to me than the fact that I had just like passed my exam <laughs> and <laughs> successfully, you know, uh, put a... Um, yeah, put an end to my um, apprenticeship. So it's like for me that kind of pointed me in the direction of okay, this is where you're going. This is what you want to do. I even did my final exam on tour because one of the tasks was to photograph an event production team on the day of production. I said, I'm going to turn this around. I'm going to photograph a tour manager putting together a new production team every single night. They let me pass with it, so they appreciated <laughs> the work. But we, like that, that's how I managed to even invite my already starting out tour life into my photography career. So I used it both ways. And obviously, every band I've worked with has also benefited from me having done, like having chosen a professional career as a photographer. Of course. Of course. Yeah, um, yeah, and then just um, that segued into it. And then me being freelance, I would take on music work, whatever work I had around, and then it naturally progressed into loads more music, which sometimes meant less money to take home with more time you spent away. But then I also, like, I had a whale of a time. I did like yeah. really enjoy it. And I think it's only when I moved to Amsterdam that I had to, switch over to photography a little bit more because I'd left my my German circles of bands that I'd been working with behind. It was a little bit too far to have me back regularly to work with them. Um, so and why did I, you move? Uh, that was a relationship that didn't even last that long. <laughs> In there. <laughs> I, had, I had also done the, you know, I had set, I was set on moving, had had a leaving party, and I didn't just want to come back two months later and be like, oh, yeah, that didn't work out. I said, like, no, it's too proud. I'm going to make this work. <laughs> and it's days, and that was like eight years ago. Um, nice. And it, it's proven to be like the right decision to have a, like a two-track career, both in professional photography and in music because it's always gone back and forth. It's gone up and down in waves. Some years I would do one thing more, other years I would do the other more. And it's always been a nice thing to fall back on, like moving country, having to restart my freelance network. 
I had the photography skill set. I could start it. I did start a job in a studio here in Amsterdam, which was not the most exciting thing, but it paid the rent and made me able to start my network here and eventually started it over, but imported some of my international touring network with me as if nothing ever happened. If I was in Hamburg or Amsterdam, I would see the people the same amount of times a year, if not more often. Um, And then, then, yeah, just transitioned. And after a while, I met a, a Dutch, like an Amsterdam-based band here that eventually said, do you do you want to sell some merch for us and do some driving? Because none of us have driving licenses anymore for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and that turned into, from being the driver, helping out with merch to actually ending up as their manager. So actually, I was their manager from album release cycle and the whole, everything that's attached to it. Okay. And that is a band that they plays a like, hundred shows a year, which is quite yes. impressive, considering most of them still hold on jobs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When then for me that was I actually still kept up my freelance jobs on the side, um, which when I quit working with them also meant I had something to fall back on again. Yeah, of course, it's always been a bit of a safety net, not consciously, but it's always proven to be quite useful especially now in this past year when um uh i couldn't even go to the photography studio do any of that work but i do i am an okay retoucher if like i've professionalized myself a bit more it's like in, in e-commerce um over the years so when the pandemic hits the tour i was on uh was meant to be a month Uh, across the UK we had to like stop it after two weeks and put everyone back on the flights to the US and get ourselves back into um, um, where all the backline was stored in the north of England and then I was home for I thought yeah well I thought it was going to be a few weeks I still had a US tour coming up there I thought yeah if we get this under control by then I can go in July because um, I had he had not two two month two and a half months of US shows lined up and I was quite proud of that because that for me meant I'd finally made it out of Europe to tour somewhere else I'd gotten a visa and work permit which is uh, kindly enough sponsored by a big label so I felt like it felt really official to have yeah absolutely this and I felt like an like official recognition of my next step in my touring career and um, yeah but that obviously didn't happen but um just when I came back from tour I just messaged my colleague and I'm still saying like I know I'm not meant to be back or anything and I won't be, ba- be back in Amsterdam I'm staying with my partner in England but I can retouch from home if you need to and they were really grateful because e-commerce has uh, been thriving <laughs> I would say with That's everything. That's understatement. Yeah, it's um, uh, so they have been completely overrun with clients being like, "All right, okay, we need to get everything online, take our photos, so we can keep selling stuff." Um, so they were quite happy to have some uh, someone else helping them out, and I was quite happy to have something to do. <laughs> I, I get that. <laughs> I, um, I mean, I was quite grateful to have some some weeks off. 
during lockdown last year to go hiking, gardening. As I said earlier, I did a lot of baking. I cooked a lot, which I usually don't get around to. But then I did have a source of income, luckily enough. And um, I'm, I'm so grateful for that. And it brings up a really important point about balance, you know, you know, the, the touring life. And I imagine also some of your photography is if you're a freelancer is you take up a lot of work and you get really busy. So how to balance uh, your life and where do you find that balance? It is something that I'm still working out to be really honest because of, being a freelancer for so many years I like when when did I go freelance in 2009 so that's yeah almost 12 years now um as you said you like take on the work as it comes and sometimes you double and triple book yourself on some days because you think all right but this is only coming in now for a short period of time I can do this and sometimes you tend to then do this too much. I did definitely feel this at some point where I had to take a step back and cancel a lot of things and say, no, this is, I have pushed myself beyond my own limits. Um, but it is this nature of, you don't know if this opportunity will come back. So you take it on, you somehow make it fit into your schedule. Um, and then it's really, really hard to allow yourself to have a balance or to, um, I've even said that when I was before I was in university or even until I was in university I had regular hobbies I would like certain sports I would do I was an avid swimmer I would swim in competitions I would climb I did acrobatics um, but these things rely on regular practice and regular commitment to it and if there's anything tour life and freelance life doesn't allow it's anything regular Absolutely. because you you'd have to cancel all the time and then if it's like for acrobatics for example you always have a partner you do acrobatics with you have to let someone else down so it's just one thing I mean it's always kept me from luckily it's kept me from signing up for gym memberships because I'm like There's no <laughs> You know, most people go like, I'm going to sign up to the gym. I said, I'm not even going to try. <laughs> yeah. Wasting money. <laughs> yeah, um, plus hauling around boxes of merch, you know. Yeah, you know. It, it's, it's a workout. I mean, if you load a splitter van full of gear, that's like a ton of weight. <laughs> twice. Like, I actually moved house with uh, one of my tour splitters that I've been driving for years. And I'm like, that's not even half full. You know, I moved house. And it was nothing in comparison to what we schlepping and out of a van every night. So, <laughs> like, moving house, that piece of cake is easy. So, when do you know when you're run out? You know, whether it's in a tour, or whether it's through you know photography, that you're saying, "Oh my god, I need a break." Um, I think the last time it really. I knew I really needed a break. It was actually not too far off from when you were counting the amount of iced coffees I would have on a long drive. Um, I would have so much coffee to keep myself going because I did not get enough sleep because of really short nights to keep myself going. I drank a lot of coffee and my body at some point said, no, I'm not having this anymore. So I was feeling it really... I would have really bad stomach cramps that would also then 
perpetuate the whole thing because it will keep me from sleeping. But I would also, like any bit of caffeine would make me feel really shaky and as, as if I was about to faint. And that's when I like went to my GP and said, something's really wrong here. And they just said, yeah, well, we checked your on like we checked your bloods and like nothing serious. We don't see any. Luckily, they didn't tell me before. Only when they gave me the results that there's no cancer or anything here. Oh God, that's where you were. <laughs> Jesus, yeah, <laughs> I wasn't even thinking about that. While I was waiting for the blood results, but they said basically what it looks like: you have your your um, white blood cell count is low, as if you just had an infection when you've had a cold mm. or something. You usually your white blood cell count is a bit lower. Um, but I said, I didn't have any, I have not been ill. I've not had a cold or anything like this. And they said, well, then that's most likely stress. And weirdly enough, this GP telling me this was stress, stressed me out. And that's when I realized, okay, this, I have taken on too much. If just a mention of the word triggers me feeling. Yes, yeah, of course. And I knew <coughs> I needed to take some time out. I needed to change something. I tried to change the way I worked with the bands and it didn't quite, it didn't quite work out. And I knew okay, I had to step out here and then took, uh, actually took three months off completely. Oh, wow. So I didn't, I didn't work at all. I like focused on just getting the balance back into place and also finally making my way back to being able to enjoy coffee because I couldn't (laughs) for like half a year I couldn't drink any caffeine no alcohol because it would just all push me a little bit too close to the edge so was that difficult Svenja to kind of say stop for three months when you're kind of running and you're in this kind of inertia yeah it was awful (laughs) I have to say especially at first when my GP told me to like sit down put your feet up and try to rest. And then I came back two weeks later. She said, how did it go? So I did put my feet up and I didn't get anything done. It was awful. And she's like, well, that's exactly the problem. You don't allow yourself to not get anything done. You need to have, and you need to allow yourself to have a day of not getting anything done. Because if you overdo it, then you might actually bring yourself to the point of not being able to do anything just because you've done too much. And I was at the point where I couldn't do even my taxes, my tax declaration. I was too overwhelmed, couldn't handle it. So I needed to really say, okay, this was too much. I need to sit down and really do nothing and get myself in a better space and then start over and make sure whatever work I take on respects these boundaries that I have that I need I need sleep for example like now when I'm touring or when I even when I work at festivals I say I need to have the right environment that I can perform at my best and work at my best especially like on tour and even more so at festivals it's a very compressed time frame that you squeeze a lot of work into and like intense work where you you know you're going to have little sleep and long days with constant multitasking a lot going on it's loud it's dirty it's hot it's cold it's wet it's everything it's Um, also it's also mini crisis mini crisis mini crisis 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 yeah yeah exactly someone is late somewhere and you need to make up for it or the weather changes so the entire night built schedule gets scrapped and you need to readjust everything you're doing so that's um 
to be able to take on these mini crises, you need to have a buffer in your energy reserves. And if you've depleted it by just getting through the day, you're not going to be able yeah. to do anything. So for me, I, I needed that hard reset, I think. I needed to completely stop and then restart and be more careful about the way I restarted and also like I changed who I work with afterwards as well um, and from the get-go said okay these are not the demands I make because I don't want to sound it like demanding but these are just like I think basic common sense things that we have that if you know if it's after a certain time we don't message on messengers to each other if we need something important Especially yeah. like if we're on the bus, we can pin each other a little message onto the bunk or on the <coughs> breakfast table so you don't wake anyone up or you just actually keep to a certain level of noise after a certain time, you know, just like the little things you think are normal. Um, but Did you find was- it a challenge as a woman yeah. in a very kind of masculine world i mean in terms of environment and to kind of say hey these are my boundaries these are my limits yeah well especially if they um i briefly mentioned it before that it's there's just not been like i have to work twice as hard to get at least that recognition of the position or function that i hold um and i'm whatever mistake I make is more scrutinized, it's more looked at, and it's just, yeah, you have to deliver way more to be taken seriously. It's like, it's slowly changing now and I can, I can, I can feel it. And I'm quite grateful for that. It's just, we still have a, a good way to go, but we're already making better progress there, but it, it definitely, yeah, I feel like I can ask for the I'm not, I, for, for years I had the feeling I couldn't ask for certain things and for years my first years on tour I was just like nah I don't hang out with girlfriends I'm just like running with the boys um, mm-hmm. until I later learned also from a dear colleague I can allow myself to um, to be girly or feminine and that's okay that's me that's who I am but I had to learn to allow myself that and absolutely now now here's my question you're you're saying about you know and this has nothing to do with being a woman but I'm just from personal experience and and being around these kind of people um a lot of bands that are semi-professional they look at touring as just an extension, an extended party. So someone else is taking care of logistics. So they get to go out and play and hang out and party and do whatever. And you come in and you say, guys, one o'clock, don't message me. I don't care. Blah, 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 blah. Like, have you, have you run into any problems with this? Cause I would imagine people hire you because you're good at your job and there's good word of mouth. Mm-hmm. So I would hope in a perfect world that the people who hire you, would respect you as a tour manager or as a merch manager or whatever position you're in yeah, uh, it does, re- regardless. It does, it does happen more now, especially because if the artists I work with now are more full-time artists. So like when we're on tour, we're on tour for a month, two, three months straight. And then, then the vibe is already automatically not, we can't party every night because... <laughs> 
there's already in the schedule there's two maximum three shows in a row and then there's a day off for voices to recover and everyone yeah. to recover and then we that, we do get a bit of a weekend we get the roadie friday uh, on whatever day of the week it is by just having this rhythm and mm. having this time off but also just a general vibe is more okay we do have the occasional night of drinking until the early hours but it's more a general like we all need to get through this okay and there's no office job that we go back to where we can recover from the weekend this is an everyday job and like for me the vibe has definitely changed working in these circles a bit more because then everyone else has the same desire to be able to work properly every day to be able to perform so i i struggle way less with getting getting my boundaries respected because everyone else has the same level of demand i guess and, and professionalism. work with more women now i have to say that uh, and last time i think was the first time we we're on the bus and we outnumbered the guys awesome <laughs> i um i w- when i was doing some research on you <clears throat> I found you on a website called Women in Music, and yeah, it's Women a, in Live Music, yeah. Women in Live Music, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's a, I thought it was brilliant. It's a resource for women in every facet of live music, from everything to makeup, hair, to text, front of house, merch managers, tour managers, um, guitar right. techs, like everything, uh, performers, everything from one spectrum of the other. We have so many truck drivers too. They're so badass. Wow. Yeah, yeah no, it, it was a, it was a, or, I mean, this sounds really dumb, but it was a revelation at how many there were. I was, I was so impressed. Yeah. And it's, it started a few years ago. Um, started by a UK and a Danish sound engineer. The two of them started together and said, we want to have a bit of a platform because prior to that, well, at least over here, there's like the typical Facebook groups where there's loads of touring people and techies in there that have um, that use these groups to a, exchange stuff, but also source things to find resources for. If, hey, I need someone who can supply me with full background in X Y Z. Can someone supply this? And this is a UK based one, but it was also half operating around Europe. I'm I'm a member of. Uh, one of the most notorious ones there too, but it always had this tone of, uh, and there they call it banter. If you know, if you're on tour, if you're in any music production, you need to be able to take this banter. It's like, even if it's often misogynistic, it's often, you know, taking the piss out of each other, which like, if, if you know each other well, you might be able to do that. But if, if that this gets this banter gets so generalized and gets declared as something you have to take in, otherwise you're not part of this. Um, it often excluded people that would say, you know, I don't want to be disrespected. Like I'm doing my job. Why is this necessary? And weirdly enough, I had been thinking that I'd been in this group for ages already. I knew a few people there, but I hardly ever participated in any discussions going on there because I thought, what if I am the next victim of the banter? I'd rather stay clear. And I thought, there must be somewhere. And I did think about this with someone that we start like a female-based version of this just to have a bit of a... 
I wouldn't say counterpoint because it's not counter. It's just adding, actually. It's not taking away. Like by us grouping together in women in life music, we're not, none of us are taking ourselves out of the more general groups. We're all, most of us are members of these and actually more vocal now that we have, you know, we know each other a little bit and then, you know, we've got each other's back and not that we need to. I, I honestly think you do, actually, unfortunately. I think you still do need to have each other's backs. Yeah, it's just, I, I found it like I found it for a while seeing these both both these groups happening on Facebook at the same time. One was way more vocal also about day rates, for example. What do we think we should ask for something? And people would say, this is what I usually get paid. Whereas in the more general group, it was just like, well, you're just making a cheap. Why are you doing this? And you're just like dumping our prices here. But no one would actually say what they make. They oh, would just mm-hmm. accuse each other of, dump in the price, but never actually say what they themselves make. So for me, starting out and professionalizing myself more, trying to find out what I should be charging, couldn't find it out. Women in live music, open discussion about it. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. You know, and it's always very helpful for, you know, young women (coughs) want to start touring or want to start doing sound, want to do light. We do try and find resources for them with like just to make it like we have had women come in and shadow us young women on like shows we've done on bigger productions that they'd come in for a day and we just have them shadow us for a day just to have an in and have a little experience where we can offer it that's amazing a safe space yeah exactly it's a safe space and one that is you know, growing slowly and um, getting more recognition. Um, and it's also not like big touring groups are mostly UK based, but this one is consciously not limited to the UK. It's all over Europe, but they said, let's make it worldwide. Come on, while we're here. Yes. So one of the um, contributors that I appreciate and love seeing her work, she's written a book recently called... Um, just remember the title. Her name is Tana Douglas. She's Australian and she's like one of the first female roadies ever. Um, yeah, so what initially started out as a European thing has actually turned quite worldwide. Nice. Um, T1, I have a friend who, who works for a very large band um, and we spent a lot of time backstage with the band and the crew and everything and what I always found really cool was that one thing they did was they brought their family members in as their kids got older or their nieces and nephews. And there were a lot of women on the crew. It was a UK band and there were a lot of women um, less so in the uh, physical aspects of the tour, but more in the finances um, logistics, you know, the, the, the positions of power, uh, relative power, you know, like the, and, I don't know. I a lot of the guys in these on this with the tour with this band are older, you know, in their fifties and stuff like that, and it never phased them. You know, they're like rock and roll guys who've been through the eighties and the nineties and all this stuff. And I always found the at least for that crew, the the level of respect between all of them was always was always really high. I think that's 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 what it needs to have this level of respect, and maybe it's also a thing if if in general you have this respect for each other, 
you should also bring that on tour with you. And as you said earlier, if it's not your weekend escape to be away from your job, but you also realize that everyone else here is their job. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. And necessary for, <laughs> for I mean, it to happen. Uh, the, you need a village to... <laughs> Whatever job, whatever hobby, whatever field you're in, no matter how professional you are, you should have a respect for the other person that does whatever you're doing with you. May that be in an office or in a van or on a stage, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how did you get involved with the book and project Stay Sound and Check Yourself? Uh, um, this came like my friend... Um, Olga, who is the co-author of this book, had invited me to a workshop of the um, Go Group, which is a European festival organization that want to, um, they have a network of big European, big, small European festivals um, that get together and want to learn from each other how to make the, their festivals and their processes and us as a connection and a network better in in this case it was a workshop on sustainability um and it was like a it was spread over a few days and one day was focused on like the the material sustainability how can we make events and festivals more sustainable how do we deal with trash how do we deal with like even like having <coughs> generators like not these massive diesel generators like how do you put all these lights and the sound in the middle of a field there's no electricity mains yeah. you need to generate this energy and that's quite polluting. How do we, um, they've actually developed a system here where they um, are using alternative. When you, say, when you say here, you're saying in the Netherlands or in Europe? Oh, not it's all over Europe. Okay. So um, they are trialing this in, uh, they were going to try it last year. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they finally had the generators to a stage that they could say we could use these now let's give it a shot um, but this is the idea that we do um, look at ourselves and see how can we make this better for us as a society because like, there's, there's no doubt that music um, has such a huge influence on us as humans but we also need to make sure we don't leave such an impact on the world in a bad way and then the second day was more of a um, was a workshop on sustainability on a human level that we would um, go through different phases of workshops and uh, speak about how we can sustain ourselves better in this industry that is really that is what it is it's like we're all passion driven and because we're so passion driven we tend to then overstep our own boundaries because there's so much exciting stuff going on and you just want to not miss out or not let anyone down and just really follow your passion that you um, sometimes um, what you really care about can be a bit of a downfall for you. And um, my friend Holger and I were sharing a conversation with the people in the workshop and um, another workshop host there was Katya, who's the other, the co-author of the, of the author of this book. So the two of them wrote this together. Based a psychologist. She's a psychologist. Uh, she works in, uh, in Köln at the Fresenius uh, Institute. And she she basically came in as a person who's passionate about music but doesn't work in the music industry per se. She like loves going to shows, has been involved in volunteering at shows, but she came mostly on the basis of her professional 
um, knowledge and shared a bit of what actually happens psychologically when you know we're very passionate about things or how stress actually formulates because there's positive stress that we all experience this adrenaline this push when you like there's a lot going on and you actually weirdly magically manage to do it all and that is that is a rewarding thing that is that is great this is something that is positive stress that motivates us to get going and we get a feeling of success and reward afterwards when we've managed these things um, and then we had a conversation about this over lunch afterwards and then the two of them actually got together and wrote this book so they interviewed different people from their networks and beyond and with completely different stories of how they have experienced stress how they've experienced mental health and how they've dealt with it and it's it's a very interesting read and I was quite, I was lucky that they then asked me afterwards when they were writing, if I could still contribute to the book by a um, bringing in photos from the span of my career, as well as um, I then proofread the whole book and then made sure because they're both not native speakers, uh, but wrote it in English. So they were quite grateful to have someone that they could ask that was involved in the topic, but also could proofread the whole thing. Is there anything you don't do? <laughs> I sometimes wonder that too. Like every time I get asked to translate something, it's like, I'm not a translator, but somehow I get stuck in these things. <laughs> so what did, what did you learn from that experience of, you know, participating in this book? You know, Considering you've also had a burnout yourself. Yeah, yeah, it was exactly that. It was me relating to my own story of burnout and then reading about other people's experience with such or avoiding a burnout and just the different ways of dealing with it. So while I was proofreading, I was actually, I caught myself a few times saying, ha, out really loud in the middle of the room while it was quiet. My boyfriend was like, but it was it was very it was a very it was a great experience reading and hearing other people's stories about it because I remember like for years I thought burnout was the thing where you just like drop out and then you know if you have a burnout that's it you become a yoga teacher (laughs) (laughs) I have seen that I have seen that before it happens worked for them big labels and then dropped out completely and now they're yoga teachers and that's what they do and that's great and I, I love that they found this appreciation of something that they are passionate about um I just felt like I'm still passionate about this thing I don't want to give this up so maybe I also pushed myself beyond what I can do just because I was still so attached to it I didn't want to let it go and I'm glad I didn't let it go but I needed to take a break for some people the break is to completely leave it behind and do something else for me it was taking time off and starting but being more selective and careful and who I choose to work with and how I choose to work myself and how I give myself the 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 breaks that I need and not overwork myself and it sounds like setting those limits is what's keeping the passion kind of like the way you're I don't have the English word, la levure. Yeah. The, 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 the rise? The rise of the bread. Yeah. You know, you have to keep it going all the time yeast. for it. Yeast. The yeast. There you go. <laughs> the yeast. You have to keep it going. And the passion is the same thing, right? You have to kind of take care of it every day. 
Yeah, I can I can even continue the the baking metaphor here is is for me as a baker I need to keep my sour bread if I want to bake my bread and have a really nice bread I need to keep my starter going and take care of it. Right. So even when yep. I'm not when I'm not baking there's still something I need to take care of and make sure it's maintained and that's the same with me even if I'm not out and about I need to make sure I'm I can rise to the occasion again, but in order to do that in between, I need to take care of myself. Oh, that's a great metaphor. You have some <laughs> starter in here that you have to take yeah. care of. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. If, if you don't take care of it, it goes sour and it's dead, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, wow. it's... it's <laughs> I'm amazed by this metaphor. <laughs> um, I actually bought the book for a friend of mine, for my friend who, who works for that uh, company is, or for that band it it's gone on a journey around the world hasn't it it really has but he's got it i i don't know if he's ready yet but uh i'm gonna I pick it up i that for sure i'm gonna pick it up well, yeah it's totally right it's right up your alley to yeah you. it's it's essentially this podcast in a book yeah yeah it's a great you know tebow's the psychologist yeah. i'm the guy in the scene yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, it's also, it's the idea of having something, and that's what Hogan and Katya said, and like speaking on their behalf. Um, it's definitely not an ultimate, this is the result of a study. This is a starting point of a conversation. And if this conversation can be carried in different places, like you're doing now on the podcast, like we're already two steps further than we were like 10 years ago when I thought burnout means the end of your career and that's it. It's just the, the, the having the awareness of we're all passionate about what we do. We need to also protect our passion from what we do, sometimes yeah. even from ourselves. It's really, really interesting. And I'm bringing to you two, uh, Chris, and you, uh, Svenja, uh, about sustainability, this kind of discussion. And, you know, this is kind of like my hope with this whole COVID pandemic that we move the discussion further about bigger issues about our society. uh, And that there was this kind of workshop about how do we bring sustainability to, you know, concerts and touring is an incredible initiative. Yeah, it's it's great. And I hope it also carries out more into the mainstream within our, like, are we niche? Are we mainstream? I think as a music industry or entertainment industry, we are quite mainstream. It's, if there's anything we have seen it in the pandemic, while well, it was not Absolutely. allowed to happen. Um, but we also need to carry it with... We as an industry are the people that have a voice, who have an influence on people's culture. And we are, maybe not me per se, behind the scenes, but the people that are on stage are the people everyone else listens to and looks up to. So we are the examples. If not only we lead with an example, but actually get to speak about it, or in case of festivals, we actually get to live it mm-hmm. in, in the most... There's... Um, a festival in Germany called um, Fusion. And it always had the subtitle of weekend communism. So <laughs> the weekend you go there, you live in a communist society in like just the way you live in this bubble during the festival, because it's also on an ex-Soviet um, uh, flight bunker area. So it's just like the whole construct of it is quite wild and it's not commercial. Out. It doesn't advertise itself but yet still sells out within days every year. Um, what kind of music? 
it's a lot of electronic music, but also like it's huge. So it has many different stages. Like I've been there with punk bands. Oh wow! Okay. It's there's folk, there's electronic, there's there's so much going on there, and it's this like you. If you go to these festivals and Boomtown is a similar thing, you go there for the weekend to be in a different world. Mm-hmm. And in this world, the rules can be different. You can live an alternative world where there's no plastic, there's a, like mm-hmm. a deposit system going on. And most German festivals already have that, that you you don't have uh, disposable plastic mugs. You have like more like sturdy ones that you return for a euro and then you can refill them. So these things are already in place and we can do this because it works perfectly fine on these festivals and we can try a way of living more sustainable and actually, you know, give it a shot for a few days, see how it goes. Maybe I'll carry this back into my everyday life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So an opportunity where we can basically give people the chance to try this and take it home with them. Or Boomtown, for example, also allows you to, if you can buy like a bike ticket and public transport to the festival, just to, they want less people to come by car. Um, and then people do travel across the whole country by bike to go to the festival. So they start oh. the festival a couple of days early because they travel there by bike. It's amazing because you're, you know, it's almost like now festivals and concerts, the way you're describing it is like, it's a statement. It's an ecological statement of the world that we want to live in. And then we all meet and then there's these bands that are playing. And then we, you know, there's that entertainment element to it, but there's a very important political statement about the world we want to live in, how we want to live in this world. Yeah, and it's it's the opportunity of having this this platform to say these things because, like, as a teenager or even still to this day, there's like artists I look up to and take what they say and what they sing about, or even what they do, their daily actions or how they they present themselves. Um, I, I I I take that very seriously. Or if someone says something where I'm like, yeah, I have. Definitely stop listening to this myth because of some fucking Morrissey. Morrissey has said, yeah. I'm sorry, I used to like you, but this is unacceptable. So it could go the other way as well when right. someone says something like absolutely horrendous and you're like, nah, you know, as an artist, I respected you before, but as a human, I can't do that anymore. And it's, it, we have to be able to use that to our advantage that people say, as an artist, I follow you as a human. I also really am interested in what you have to say. Well, there's that big discussion now where, um, because people, Morrissey is a perfect example. Like I love the Smiths, but I can't stand Morrissey. Like I can't stand him. Um, but now the big thing is because of somewhat cancel culture and just somewhat people are idiots. Um, people are making a debate for separating the art from the artists. Yeah, I don't think that's necessarily possible. And I don't think cancel culture is such a weird word when I think it's just consequences of your actions. Like if you can say whatever you want, but you also have to deal with someone not liking what you said. And I don't think cancel culture is just you maybe saying something really stupid and people saying, hey, that was stupid. Stop saying that. You know, yeah. I don't think that's cancel culture per se. And I think maybe then the word is loaded at the minute. 
Absolutely. But it's, to me, it goes hand in hand with the art and the artist thing and the cancel culture because, and I'm not making excuses for anybody by any means, but, you know, sometimes people will just say the wrong thing and it will explode. And there's no, my, my whole thing is, is how certain people can come back from it when what they've done is so much further gone than anybody else, but they can come back based on their status and their prestige because their audience doesn't care. Yeah. That's the part that bothers me. Like I've, I've seen artists like really being, I wouldn't say disrespectful, but like there's 80,000 people waiting to see you. Why are you two hours late? Because you just couldn't be bothered being there. Yeah. And that's just sometimes where I'm like, and that's only the light version. You're just like, you didn't show up for what you were, like people were waiting for you and wanted to see you, bought a ticket to see you. That's one thing. But then also, like if I admire you as an artist, I do kind of also look up to you as a person. And, and if you as a person turn out to be horrible, I might then leave your art behind a little bit because I can't separate it. I could say the the sometimes also the risk of meeting your idols can. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> There's a few like, like bands I've like avoided even seeing, let alone getting anywhere near, just because I think <laughs> this you know, what it means to me to listen to it. I just don't want it to, I, I don't want to risk it. I don't, you know, I don't want I, a bad experience and vice versa. Like bands that I've not seen and then after years finally managed to see and getting, I remember seeing Refused for the first time. And I don't know why it took me that long, but I saw them. And what Dennis Lixon had to say, and this was like five years ago, I think, what he had to say about his stance on feminism, which is then weird, me looking up to a man telling me about feminism. But <laughs> I felt a bit more hurt by someone who would say things that I'm like, it's not just, I need to say this is politically correct, but someone who genuinely believes in it and takes it seriously. Mm -hmm. And then also, I'm not the only woman in this crowd. It's also a lot of men in the crowd that probably never speak about this because they just, you know. Yeah. Want to mosh out to some uh, some refused and have never really thought about much what this band is about and then he's very vocal about it and also lives it in in refused's crew that they um yeah it just felt like okay this is genuine this is something that I'm not I'm not I'm taking away from the show not only the great music and performance they have put on but I'm taking away this message that he has sent out not to me personally, but to all of the audience. And I hope it yeah. lands more of them like it landed with me. So, yeah, yeah. I get that. Um, yeah. I have, I've, I didn't come up with this standard, mm -hmm. but <laughs> I always thought it was pretty funny. The Ian Mackay standard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hold everyone to the Ian Mackay standard and realistically, nobody can touch him <laughs> by any means, but um it's, yeah, like, it's like a scale. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> How Ian Mackay are you? It's like, mm. <laughs> Today, I give you a seven and a half. <laughs> yeah, no, it's... it's I, I've, I've, had, I've had experiences where 
you know, I can think of a couple. And for me, it was going to see reunion tours of bands from like the late 80s and the 90s that I saw in the 90s when they were near the end of their careers. Mm -hmm. I saw them again in the last like 10 years when they were like, oh, we're coming back. And the stuff that comes out of their mouths sometimes you're just like, oh, come on. It's heartbroken, doesn't it? Because you think such a big part of when you were younger and you really appreciated it and then you're just going like, oh, damn it. Why you hurt? It hurts. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's like maybe you misunderstood some of the, some of the connotations when you were younger, you know, because you don't really get the jokes. Mm-hmm. And then as you get older, it's just magnified, amplified right in front of your face. And you're just like, oh, this is the worst. I've definitely had it with a few bands, not even reunions, but they've just kept going since then and still do the same stuff and the same stage band. I'm like, oh God, why am I here? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I get that. <laughs> Don't want to be it. <laughs> no, it's it's not as bad as we make it out to be. But there's definitely these two, like these different sides to it where you say hey, someone needs to arrive in today's day and age and check on what they're saying is not quite. You know, we took it in the '90s. Doesn't mean it's up to date and accurate now. And vice versa, other people like refused to have been going for a long time and have just had this integrity the whole time we're just more vocal about it now than they were back then when everything was a bit more wild. So it, 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 I think it just goes to show how much weight your word carries when you, when you, when you use them on stage, because it will land with people and you can use that, the advantage of like your cause or something you care about. Well, absolutely. Especially in this digital age, like let's say you go to see Refused you film a part of his monologue. You put it on the internet. Someone else sees it. They retweet, put it on their story. They share it. Then that person shares it. Then that person shares it. Then that person shares it. I mean, what you say, there's no, there's no more secrets anymore. No, it's multiple. Exactly. Good or bad. It just explodes. If you shot white power on stage, that will come and haunt you for years. Talking about Phil Anselmo? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow he's managed to escape that a little bit, but I don't know why. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just one thing. A friend of mine has called a podcast out on just still like absolutely praising Pantera. And like, yeah, but you have to separate, you know, the artist in this statement. He said he was drunk. It was like, well, he still said it. And he made, you know, my friend who's not white and said, I used to absolutely love Pantera. I can't listen to it anymore because it's basically they're saying to me that I am not worthy. I'm worth less than they are and I can't, like, I am not a fan anymore, although I absolutely loved it. And I think in that case, he has any right to say, I feel disrespected by this and I feel disrespected by people still praising them so much. Yeah, Yeah. agreed. And I used to love Pantera. Like I, when I was a kid, they were, I, I hated metal, but <laughs> Pantera just kind of, kind of got through. Like I saw them on the vulgar display of power tour when I was 16 and it was just, it was epic for a kid with like major anger issues, you know? <laughs> yeah. And now I can't, I'm just like, no, 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 
Well, it comes back to that. I have this lyric as I'm listening to you guys talk uh, of Fugazi. You know, it's not it's not what's selling; it's what you're buying. And exactly. having this discussion about what do we buy and why, what do we refuse? And from the festivals that we kind of go to, to the bands that we kind of encourage, to the art that we encourage, uh, it's really up to you know the the listener and the buyer to decide. Yeah, I'm going to support this because it's important. Yeah. But I have to say from like, in a way, us working in this industry, and it's weird to describe us as sellers, but in your in your metaphor, we are also the sellers who can, we decide what product there is to buy. Well, yeah, but we, right. we, we decide which products to back. Yeah. Yeah. And this whole, you know, when you were saying these workshops about sustainability, it's like, what do we want to offer as a product in some ways, you know, for people to buy? Yeah, for sure. It's by like having, do we create a festival that is more sustainable or do we just not care because it's only a weekend? Oh, okay. Yeah. Exactly. We exactly. We can, this weekend, we can make such a difference. So, yeah. Svenja, where now do you see the future in terms of your life, in terms of your art, in terms of where you, what world you want to be pulled towards? Oh, that well, is. Hold on, can I say something really quickly? Mm -hmm. Before the interview, Svenja and I were talking, and you know, <laughs> and she, she said in this in this podcast, she's been lucky enough to find a job and to you know have a stable stable lifestyle for the past year. And I told her I was going to ask her this. <laughs> <laughs> and, don't, and, and don't, and don't worry, we won't let your employer hear this. But, you know. No, it's like something like, like in the beginning, I said, if there's anything we were good at, it's always making plans. But if there's one thing I know now, whatever I plan to make, whatever plan to do, what plans I make, surely they're not going to happen. So I, no matter what I say now, it's probably not going to happen <laughs> in one way or another. Um, but having said that, like, like I am currently in like a, a year contract where I am employed. So I know at least where I am until a year from now. <laughs> in a nine to five-ish. Um, but also like I do, as long as I'm not, touring actively as much I just still want to take the time and utilize this more steady lifestyle I have now to nourish some hobbies that I haven't been able to do I mean, things that I haven't been able to do for years so I want to see if I can you know given things open again um, just to have a bit of a regular thing and I am 100% sure once my contract is up and we'll see where we are at if I really get these itchy feet and I want to go out I will look at touring from a different perspective again I will appreciate some things that really annoyed me sometimes I will probably appreciate them in a different way than I of course just by having a year a year and a half maybe two years off of touring by just the very nature of it not existing at the minute. So um, having said that, in the future, I hope there is a better sense of, um, 
wouldn't say not a better sense of appreciation because it is already appreciated, but sometimes it's just taken for granted that, you know, musicians just play and you just go and it's just such a ritual habit. And sometimes you also get encountered with some people just like brushing it off and playing it cool and just being a little bit too, it's just there all the time. Why would I care? But maybe now that they haven't had shows for such a long time, they haven't been able to go, we get a little bit more of, an appreciation of how yeah. special it is that someone has, you know, sat in the bedroom for a decade to learn this instrument to be able to play for you. That's not a given. That's not something that is, you know, you only see them that night on the stage, but you don't see all the years they've eaten shit to even get to the place that they're yeah, at now. Absolutely. Yeah, I hope there's a more newfound appreciation of also what it means for us to go and have these nights away from mm. our everyday life and be able to, and then speaking now as an audience member that we can yeah, go see and like completely immerse ourselves in an evening in a, in a performance and then yeah, appreciate it again and vice versa. If like once we start up, we can do it in a more sustainable way for everyone involved. But now let me ask you a question. What do you honestly think is going to happen once everything is open again? Personally, I feel like there every single band in the world is going to be on tour. So every single night of the week, there's going to be a show. So I'm I'm trying to, you know, I'm not trying to be a pessimist at all about this, but I feel like a lot of bands are going to get left behind. I think there's going to be... And and initially, I, initially. I can already see it with, like, bookings coming through. Like, for example, like, some festival jobs I was meant to have last year or the year before, they don't exist because festivals have shrunk in size. They go, yeah. okay, we need to, like, plan for this a bit better in case it gets cancelled again so we don't incur such high costs. We just keep the whole thing smaller. Um and also, I guess big festivals can't import artists from around the world. They have to keep it a bit more national in, in just because they can't get people across borders. So maybe they can, maybe they can't. But for now, they won't know in a few months' time if they can get people in. So it's. Um, I think I've already seen a little bit of a, you must be grateful that you have this job. So take whatever pay cut. Ah, uh, shit. You know, so that's already happening. So we're hoping that, you know, once we restart, we all start with like a more, with like more humane levels of pay and quite the opposite is happening at the moment. And as you said, that might leave bands behind as well because there's going to be more competition because people want to play a show. So just take on whatever, if that means they're going to be massively out of pocket. Yeah, Absolutely. And there also, I think there might be, might have been an exodus of people that, like me, are like taking on any other job that is not within music. So, like, you I have to survive, right? You have to survive. And I think, you know, I do have a different skill set that I can fall back on. And if that means temporarily I'm making space for someone else who only does music and needs this touring job, that's like fine for me. That's how I can kind of justify for myself being a little bit sad I won't be part of it for the year to come but at least I know maybe someone else can take on a touring opportunity that mm. I would have taken on because I, I I'm safe outside I you know, yeah I it out 
So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to tell because if you'd asked me this half a year ago, I would have given me different predictions or different ideas. And now the longer it's going, like where I am in the Netherlands right now, we're in the third wave if stuff is getting worse. And so I, I've stopped making plans for the sake of having to change them so much that I've even stopped trying to imagine what it's going to be like. That, that's that's enviable because I'm in the total, I'm kind of in the opposite boat where I'm still hoping beyond hope that we will be able to go back on tour and sooner than later. And I know we won't. I know we won't. It's I, I'm, I'm talking to friends in uh, France and Italy and now you and everyone's, everything's shutting down third wave. It's, the reality is, is I know it's not coming, but I, I, I'm so stubborn that I, I, I'll acknowledge it and accept it, but I, there's just a part of me that's. Yeah, that's a very enviable thing to do that you still, like you keep that passion and you keep that hope and that's what it, they, there's nothing wrong with that, I think. <laughs> I, I have some days when I'm like, I need something to look forward to and currently there's not much to look forward to, but then it's also up to me to create something to look forward to, to make it, you know, as you said, you need you need to have this light on the horizon that you see and then you can weather out yeah. the, the sitting at home, the pensioner trial program that we've all been through. <laughs> now, are you, I know your, your current job is retouching, but with all your free time, are you taking photos again of anything? Uh, well, I wish I wish I could say I had so much free time, but I'm in the middle of moving my home from another country. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I spent my, all, right. all my spare time of the last two months house hunting and trying to figure out logistics of how to get my belongings from a country that's not in the EU anymore. Um, uh, Brexit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just been, for someone who's lived across countries for years and it's been always fine for me to live in the UK, live in the Netherlands and like, have my feet in both doors and it was like I lived across borders and now this border in between is shut uh, it's a little bit of a nightmare so um but I hope come next month I will have some more spare time and actually do get to take more photos again I did ask my partner to bring my cameras with him when he moves here in a few weeks time so I can actually I do want to it's itching and um, yeah mm-hmm. But now, it, did you, is your are you guys moving to Amsterdam because of Brexit, or was it planned anyways? Uh, it was a mix of both. Okay. So I think it just made it made us make this decision quicker, just because there is a like deadline built in where like there's a lot of paperwork involved in this decision, and because like I've moved countries before within Europe, and it was usually never a matter of needing permission to be anywhere you just packed your things and went to another country that's how I went to the Netherlands put my stuff in the van and went and then did the paperwork in the Netherlands but that was fine whereas now it's there's so much more involved and it's so much more complex that unfortunately because there was a built-in deadline we decided this sooner than we would have otherwise but we would have probably done it anyways so it's just a little bit sped up process now love rules yeah <laughs> it does yeah it rules over everything absolutely and, you know, but hopefully it means that when 
we're both settled I do actually get more time to go back to my passions and to live them out and not do nine to five and survive yeah all right I'm gonna ask you one last question and we'll wrap this up last year excluded has it been worth it so far yeah so worth it I, I think I've made so many absolutely amazing friends on tour that people that had I stayed in my hometown where I grew up and not gone anywhere, I would have never met these people. And some of these become, have, it's maybe like you're spreading your, 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 your net of how you catch people. And it's, it's much bigger than it would be if you were fishing for friends somewhere closer to where you grew up. And it sometimes makes some encounters more random, but some other encounters are just, they just stay with you. And even if you're across the world and on different continents, there is a person you have met in a similar life that then you, uh, you get to share. Like I remember going to Toronto in 2014 and then spending New Year's Eve with the guys from pub who had met, um, Maybe the year before they were in Amsterdam, needed somewhere to stay, crashed yeah. at my house, spontaneously went for uh, for a night out in the bar, and they became pals and friends. And then, and then I came to Toronto, and it was at the start of their touring career when they had set out on this year of playing 250 shows or something, and they'd come back home to their friends, to their home, and then I came in and could tell the story that they have been telling from their stories and adventures around the world. And there was a living proof in the living <laughs> like, Yeah, no, it's there. It happened. <laughs> so it was for me, like a bizarre experience to be the living proof of something that had happened. But then also like, we are the living proof of these things happening around the world. And it's such a nice community and a shared memory with people from different places. And even me, moving to England I already I moved to a different city that I had not really been in much before and I had two like really good friends there that I had met on tour in different places and so I know now wherever I go in the world there will be someone somewhat close by that I have met before that I'm close to and that I can rely on so that that's such a beautiful thing um, so I, that's the biggest take I have from these years, over a decade now of sharing this passion with a lot of people. And, and it's crazy because if you haven't experienced this for yourself, if you try to explain to someone who doesn't understand this, you're like, oh, I met this person in a squat in Poland in 20, 2005, and mm-hmm. now they live in Australia and we're going to spend a week at their house. Yeah. People are like, but how do you know that? What do you mean? You know, you met this person one night? It's like, yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, but that, that night is just sometimes, you know, okay, that's going to be maybe the only night you're going to see them for a long time, but you met on the same on the same turf, on the same grounds, and you met them in the same place. So it's yeah. like there's so much more that connects you to that one person to maybe the person you've lived next door to for 10 years. Absolutely. I mean, this is, I met Thibaut at a show. I met you at a show, you know? Yeah. And here we are. <laughs> I have a fantasy about shows when they're going to start 
coming back up again, real shows that they're going to be just, and it's a fantasy. I'm hoping that it's true. And it's going to be a very cathartic experience for a lot of people, at least the people who are, you know, who love live music. And I'm one of those persons. It's going to be very tearful. It's going to be very cathartic. I want I'm going to hug whoever's around me and say, <laughs> I love you, you know, and let's fucking you know, scream at the band so that they can play at their best and just send that energy, you know? I'm, I'm excited for that day because I have to say after so many years in music, I like had some show fatigue sometimes when of I would course. go to some shows. Absolutely. It's also, I think maybe I'm just waiting for the loadout so much because it's so <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but now I'm, I want to go and stand somewhere again and like, you know, someone is sweating next to you and hugging you for no reason but i, I miss this I want to it's crazy there. to think that you have fantasies about armpit smells and say oh, i can't <laughs> wait to be in that dirty club <laughs> where before it was like i'm too old for this shit <laughs> where's some freaking deodorant <laughs> it's it's exactly this like if you have this like one thing taken away from you for such a long time you think oh I did like, I did underappreciate it and now I want it again yeah, yeah. absolutely alright Svenja thank thanks you. so much for this this has been great yeah thank you for having me it's been great uh, been a great evening yeah it's been uh, wonderful <laughs>